very, very good morning to you on what is around day 472 of the Fellowship, but it's not a, an episode like any other today. It's actually episode three in the Q&A series. So uh, at the time of recording, I've had a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast. It's been a busy season of teaching, busy season of paper submission, grant writing, all of the above. Um, and that's just to mention the professional stuff. But we're back into the swing of it and breaking up the regular episodes with this third Q&A episode. And this is actually a recording from a recent imposter phenomenon seminar that I gave. So being um, privileged to be out on the road a little bit to peddle my wares for You Are Not a Fraud, a scientist's guide to the imposter phenomenon. So I've been given um, new and summary type seminars of what the book involves, why I wrote it, and what people can get from it. And as part of that, I was welcomed back to my dear colleague, Dr. Lucrezia Cazuli's class in the Strathclyde Business School. She teaches a module called Mindset Lab. Her cohort are master's level business students, um, business-minded people, entrepreneurs of the future, entrepreneurs presently in their own right. So as a chemist, one of the most departed audiences from what I'm used to. Um, I spend most of my time talking about research to physical scientists rather than psychology to uh, students in a business school. So it's a wonderful world apart from the mainstay of what I do. But, you know, such is the opportunity presented by the book and rather enduring support from people like Etzia. Etzia's class is fantastic. She teaches a lot of different schools of psychological thought and answers questions around why why are some people driven by entrepreneurship and others are utterly scared by it? Who are those who can stick that game out and play it well? And, and who are those who would never ever dream of working in that space? So I was asked along as a guest lecturer to tell a little bit of the story that I had to tell with regards to what part imposter experiences play and whether or not someone will take entrepreneurial risk. So I'm not playing the seminar itself. I've actually given related types of seminar and put those out in previous episodes of the podcast. I'm actually focusing on this for the Q&A episode. Surprise, purely on the Q&A part. But it's not just to have another excuse to put out a Q&A episode. Given that this was a more unusual audience in terms of the conversations I'm used to having, the types of questions I got were therefore, I found in some cases, surprisingly and pleasantly probing, jarring, and really made me stop in my tracks a number of times. And I hope that's what you hear in the audio when I eventually get to it. I look back on it with great fondness because it's only in these Q&A sessions for book seminars that I learn how to make the next one better, that I learn all the different ways of thinking that didn't even occur to me when I was writing a book. It's very easy to sound like some sort of millennial messiah when you give these talks and make it sound like you've got it all figured out because you've written a book. It's by no means the case. The book is a, a thin slice of the world of thought that occurs to people after you talk to them about it. And 
the Q&A that you're about to hear was no exception to that, but it was exceptional in terms of the conversation that it brought. So without further ado, try that again, especially on video. Without further ado, please do enjoy this Q&A episode three of the Read Indeed podcast. Take care, and I'll see you again soon for regular episodes of the podcast. All the best. It's time for me to shut up and listen to what you have to say. Thank you very much indeed. I see a half a hand, a full hand now. Thank you very much. Um, It might sound out of the spectrum, anything that you actually talk about, but I really wonder, do you agree or how much do you agree about, you know, it was an outcome of really, really deep research back then that say human beings are the only living creatures in the world that they think rational, but also, but in reality, they are the only ones actually irrational. Very profound question to kick us off. I love it. So if I play that back to you and tell me if I've got this wrong. Um, let me let me explain why I actually okay. just thought about it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, whenever the bank robber doesn't cover his face. So, and also with the, you know, the, all the scales. At some point, there should be some sort of um, beyond of rationalism that he actually convinced himself. He has the right reasons and he has the right things to rob the bank, even without a face mask and stuff. Yes. Listening to you speak further and qualifying that helps because it reminds me of a term that I often play back to my own students in science. I'm paraphrasing Richard Feynman, who was a very famous physicist in his day. Nobel Prize winner from the 1960s. That scientists live not on certainty, but on doubt, because you yourself is the easiest person to convince of anything. And this is what I think you're getting at, because we are uniquely placed to self-reflect. We are at the same time uniquely placed to make decisions based on what we think is a complete data set that is only ever a, a real thin slice of the full picture of what is out there. This links to what I shared earlier with regards to emotions and facial expressions. This came from my reading of a neuroscientist called Lisa Feldman Barrett, who popularized the theory of constructed emotion. Most of us will think that our emotions, our behaviors are somehow inbuilt and carried by the cave dweller we once were in our ancestry, but much of our emotional experience is built rather than being built in. It comes from the the thin slice of data you have in your experience to come up with what your body thinks is the best response, giving a new data set that looks in some way similar to an old data set. But every new data set is somehow different from the old one. So what your brain is actually doing is not reacting, but predicting. What should, what should it do on the basis of past experience? 
So this point of irrationality is, is not just a good one, but a profound one because everything that you are and do is built up by your subset of all possible experiences. This is consistent with that earlier notion I shared that some emotions only exist in certain parts of the world. And the same facial expression shared by someone in the East and the West might mean two very, very different things culturally because the experiences of those on one side of the world have different data inputs to those on the other side. So how could they possibly be the same? How could the brain possibly predict the same thing? The simple answer is it cannot. So we are indeed irrational. Does that answer your question? Completely. Thank you. Thank you. We have another question. Let me do the musical step around yeah. here. I'm not exactly sure it's a question, but it's more of a, I don't know, I would just kind of say it as in. Go for it. I, I like feeling like an imposter. Yeah. Like it makes me feel free. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. And I don't know if that's because I come from, I don't know, like, I, I'm lucky that I've got confidence. I don't know where that comes from, but I feel more at home, um, like as an imposter. And I'm thinking of like uh, my family, they don't expect anything. Like I, I would feel terrified if I was from a family that like, I don't know, you're expected to be the next big thing, if mm. that makes sense. You know, yes. like maybe the son of a, a sports player or mm -hmm. something like that. I've got freedom just to live my own life. But so that's where the confidence kind of comes from. But then it's as well, I like situations where I am kind of an imposter. I, I don't know, I feel more free, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yes, yeah, several. Um, it's, it's a really unique way of coming to a point. I have heard several times before, but yours is a, a curious one because it's the first time I've heard imposter, free and confidence all uttered together. <laughs> so it is a really, really interesting way that you've phrased this. I'd say firstly, that one thing you've mentioned is family. This is uh, really at the root of many an imposter experience. Um, I've written about this in the book, but in short, innocently or otherwise, how you are labeled as a child or as a sibling uh, can subconsciously play on how you live out your life as an adult. For example, there could be two siblings, one who is badged as the clever one, someone else is the kind one or the curious one. But if you are labeled the smart one, then that can be a very innocent seed for darker things to come. You might, and spoiler alert, this is my experience. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm the oldest of three brothers, but I was also the first in our immediate family to go to university. So this throwaway term of being the smart one was never done with malice. It was done in a way to build confidence, but in me it's instilled the insecurity that I feel like I always need to be the smartest person in the room and I really am. Um, and that if I'm not, I'm a failure. So family is a big part of that. But to try to come to the other part of what you said, if I play it back to you and rephrase it, I've often been asked, is there anything good about the imposter phenomenon or feeling like an imposter? And there absolutely is. And it comes most obviously in another behavior that we all share, which is to compare ourselves to other people. It's a part of the human condition to do so. And it's the most energy efficient way for you to figure out 
where is your ability versus where you want your ability to be. It can also be used to see where is my opinion of this matter versus what those in the group or the crowd think of this matter. That's, that's a, a story for another time. <laughs> but if we focus on ability, it's very natural. It can be very productive to compare yourself to someone who's just a wee bit ahead of you. It's there, it's tangible. You want to be where they are. The dark side of that comes where it's not a good thing is when you compare yourself to that person and consider nothing about how they got to there. Yeah. You, consider, you don't consider their 200 rejections or what their upbringing was, what their elements of luck were. It's the instantaneous nature of comparison can turn something that is very good about an imposter experience into something that's very detrimental. I would say I, I had the experience where, so I done engineering in my undergrad, okay. and I kind of went down the civil engineering route because I was good at physics and I was good at maths at school. Just, yeah. just good, but I turned up and I was like, oh, I'm one of the people who are actually good at physics and maths. Like I felt like an imposter in there, but uh -huh. I didn't ever compare myself to them. I went, I need to figure out another way to beat them at this game. I'm not going to play that league game of being better at physics and maths. I need to, and maybe that's when I tried to work on my, more of my talking skills. I ended up kind of being a middleman at university, you know, like taking the homework of one person and being like, oh, and then like passing it to another kind of, don't tell Harriet Watness, they might take my degree away. But I, I don't know, it was just, yeah, I never, I, I don't know how I came around to that, but it's in, well, maybe I'm lucky that I don't compare myself to people I try and play in a different league, if that yeah. makes sense. I don't try and copy that at all. Yeah, so I see some nodding heads, which is cool because this actually, so I had a, a group meeting with my research team on Wednesday and we were talking about this very thing. So we, I don't need the details, but we develop a technology for chemists to use to help them understand the chemistry they are doing. It puts us in a position where we can go into a little subset of chemistry not as a competitor to anyone in that field, but a server of everyone in that field. Yeah. So it's, we're trying to reframe what we do as a service to everyone. So at times where we've felt insecure, read me, where we could say, oh, that other group does this. Oh, we're not as good as them. They've got more resource. We've tried in the technology we are doing, uh, working on now to flip the script and say, instead of being a competitor to these people, how can we be a service to all of these people yeah. who are competing with one another? Yeah. So I think you've done something very, very similar. That's what there. I kind of done at university yeah. is in <clears throat> Jess was good at structures. And I was like, oh, Jess. And then she would come to me though and she'd be like, oh, did you get the, do you know the answers for transport? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I got the answers for transport. But I've actually got them off of Isaac. And I've also gave him the like ones from Jess. But I was kind of that middle, I was that outside one that was serving everybody. And I was getting the value through that. Yeah. yeah. So glad you shared that. That's been great, thank you. So I think we captured everything there. Just uh, I see some other folks are wanting to ask something, but yeah, the two main things there were, you know, family influence can play a big role yeah. in whether or not you feel like an imposter and different elements of comparison can play in both good and bad. Yeah. Hi, there you go. So I was wondering why did you choose this thing to research about? What, what was your thinking while you were researching about being an imposter completely? What, what was going through your mind while you thought to uh, research about this? I love the question because now that I stand here with a book, it sounds like it was always meant to be. It, I never chose it, I needed it. It was selfish, it was a diary. It was two years of me working in my postdoc in Edinburgh 
after graduating here and going to work, going from a PhD with one group of people I knew very well to a new organisation, a new group of people, a lot of circumstances I knew nothing about and a lot of instantaneous triggers for me to compare myself to others who I didn't know who were at roughly the same career stage and look at how many papers they had, what metrics they were praised for, you know, how much knowledge they could recite versus me. Uh, I got to a point where I thought, I, there's something consuming my thought here and I don't know what to call it. So the only reason that book exists is because for two <coughs> years in secret, I sat and wrote a diary on my laptop. I just went home every day and thought, I compared myself to this person today. I felt shit about this. Sorry for the expletive, but this is the truth of it. You know, and it was, it was just a way to get it out of my head because I wouldn't have been able to go to work if I didn't. And back then I just didn't know how to codify it. I didn't know that the term imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon even existed. It was only as that got to the end of those two years that I started to read things. And instead of writing about just how I was feeling, I would write a short summary of a book and things like that. And slowly but surely the diary turned into little chapters. And then eventually a friend of mine convinced me to write a book. It was only after all of that that I put my scientist hat back on and said, well, as well as the stories and the history that I can tell, just do a research project. You know, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm not a psychologist, and I've been very clear at the start of that book to say so. But I know psychologists, I can design this thing, I can have it peer reviewed by people who are psychologists and put this thing together that will be a worthwhile addition to the personal stories. Mm. So in short, don't let me fill you into thinking this was me wanting to do just some other research project beyond my expertise. It was no such thing. It started from very, very selfish means. I absolutely needed it. Yeah. So one, one more thing, if you don't mind me asking. Please. That uh, since you found yourself some probably sometime in like the imposter, imposter phenomenon, how did you get yourself out of it? How did you make yourself, you know, out of that phenomenon, probably? Um, what makes you think I'm out of it? No, probably you might be able to control it somehow. Or probably yeah, you're right. I'm, 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 I'm playing for the sake of conversation because you've not asked it directly, but you've raised a very important point. One mission that I am on is to stop, make people consider using terms like overcoming imposter syndrome, smashing it, curing it, getting rid of it. The operative term that we should all be using is managing it. Mm. I'm managing it now. I still feel it all the time, but I'm far more aware of the sorts of tools I can use to get past this particular instance of it. But coming back to fear of failure, to an imposter, feeling like an imposter being a good thing, being entrepreneurial, if you don't ever feel like an imposter, you're not doing it right because you're not challenging yourself in a way that is worthy of the efforts that you've got to give. Curing the imposter experience is a misnomer because it gives you the false promise that once you've solved it once, that it won't ever come back. A new instance of it will come in your future because you will try new things, take more risks. It won't ever be the same as the other thing. But have, if you go into the new thing thinking that you've already cured it, 
you're setting yourself up for the dejection and disappointment of it coming back. And then you think, oh, why, 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 why am I feeling like this? I thought I'd solved this problem. But it's a management thing because the imposter experience is not something to get rid of, but rather an old friend to recognize because it will always be with you. If you've felt like it, it will always be there. If you're trying new things, it will always be there in some form or other. Thanks for your yeah. questions, they were great. Thank you. Just one more by the looks of it from Etzia. And one of the things we have not talked about today, and maybe we have hinted at, is this notion of we project a certain persona to the world. Mm-hmm. And certainly in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, that is a feature. People project an image of themselves as they do in every walk of life. But it also happens in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, you know, from the way one dresses to the way one portrays themselves to the things they put out on social media to create an image. So my first question, I guess, is do you have any thoughts on why we do that? why everybody feels that they have to do that. But what I was getting at that you've talked about in the past is why are we still so bad talking publicly about our failures? Unless we do so to glamorize the failure once we know we have achieved success. So, you know, the only stories you get from entrepreneurs that will talk about their failures are from those who have now achieved success and they can safely talk about their past failures. Otherwise, nobody shares their CV of failures, right? One of the things that you recommend that you do is to have your CV of failures. I've learned about CV of failure from Mark. So instead of having the nice CV that shows, here is all the beautiful things I've done. Look at all my qualifications. Look at all the things I can do. There is also the other CV. Look at all the rejections I've had, all the things I've failed at, all the things that I never managed to achieve. So that's not very well phrased, but yeah, why do we have do we have this strong urge to project this image of ourselves, even though we know it's so detrimental to each other's mental health? And also, why are we so bad at having and sharing a CV of failures? So the CV of failures that Etzia mentioned, I've, uh, I've written it down on paper, but now as a point of practice, so not to be a hypocrite, I've written about it and it sits next door to my biography on my website. So, you know, about Mark, biography, CV of failures. And it's been there since before I had the position I've got now. I've, I've been populating it for several years. So there's a bit of a blog here, but just to fast forward to the important things, this is a part of my CV of failures. So to play this back for your recording, you know, 2021, 22, more grant applications than rainy days in Glasgow. 2020, uh, an industrial job I went for, got interviewed, but denied it. Fellowship, not even shortlisted. 2019, university lectureship, interviewed, but denied the post. And so on and so forth, back from 2019 to 18 to 17, 16, 15 and 14. That's a, a small subset of the things that I've gone for and no one's looked twice at me. And at every point, I've felt like throwing in the towel. I don't know why I have kept going. But even, you know, students I was talking to yesterday, they started talking and assuming that, 
you know, I was here because I'd always been here or there was always a chance of me being a, a lecturer or a scientist, but I had to stop them in their tracks because, you know, I, I'm like, in a job that I had 2% chance of getting, I had plans before coming back here of living in Bristol because that's where I was working at the time. I didn't know how to write anything other than an academic CV and I paid people at Read Indeed, uh, not Read Indeed, that's me, Jesus, how narcissistic do you want to be? Um, indeed, you know, the, the, the job site company, because uh, I just had no idea how to turn that into anything more business facing or entrepreneurial. I'm not an academic, I was, I was scared witless. This, just like life, this job that I'm in now, I'm very much aware every day that it was never meant to be. You know, it was part, a lot of hard work, but partly luck as well. And I'm enjoying this now because I know I could be working in many other places. And that's why I put this up here for everyone to really show the truth and to encourage other people to do it from them, for themselves. When I am hiring people now, I look for people who are comfortable to say things like this because it gives a signal that they're not just showing the best bits. Um, it, was, it was one of our questions this morning was, uh, we all wrote our fears and put them in a hat. And one of the ones our group had was um, fear of giving up when the times got hard. So I know you said you, you don't know why you didn't give up, but if you were to, if you were to pinpoint or do you just... Uh, um, so I did, I mentioned earlier that I, I've always been the the quote-unquote smart kid in the family because I was the first to want to sit my exams and go to university. I was also the first to have that opportunity, right? But that was the thing that was never said. So I've, I've got a very deep fear of failure. Like I would feel, as Etsy I got to earlier in our own slide deck, uh, I would feel some shame. And I have felt shame in the past when I've failed at things. The reframing I've tried to do here and that I'm still trying to do is that every such failure is an experiment. So we run exercises in our research group meetings, for example, where I set, I set tasks that I know the group can't possibly succeed at. Yeah. So they might do part of it, but they might have to skip past doing something in a perfectionist way or do only part of the job or do something very rough and ready just to keep moving, but they won't ever succeed at the whole thing. So creating a failure feedback loop to keep refining something is more important than stopping halfway and making it perfect before moving on. It's, it's really interesting that, because we were learning about this yesterday, the fixed and growth mindset, yeah. or maybe two days ago. But it's, like we would, I don't know if, if I'm right or not, but I, I would classify more as a fixed mindset, like that's scared of making mistakes. But yeah. I wonder if there's a, I don't know, a study or an interesting one about that fixed and, so I'm the youngest of three children. Okay. And I feel like I've got more of that growth mindset. Yes. But I think of my oldest sister and she was put in the same kind of position as you. She was told she was a smart one and she was the first one that kind of went to university out of us. I'd say she has a more fixed mindset, but I don't know if there's been any studies on that as in like, and people always class, I feel like families, especially, I don't know, families are free that I meet. Yeah. <laughs> this is quite bad, but we always say, um, my oldest sister's the favorite child. My middle <laughs> sister's the forgotten child. And I was the golden child. <laughs> I, like sometimes people say that like they put these categories as well, but I was wondering, it'd be interesting to research the, yeah, the fixed and the growth mindset with that oldest child and the youngest one. That's very intriguing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know much about that. Um, the main focus, the main signal that came out of 
my own data set for this study, where people, when they were writing openly about their own experience, uh, experience either identifying parental pressures or that feeling of being, what I hear a lot in STEM circles as being first gen. Yeah. You know, uh, there'll be like hashtag first gen on Twitter, like a, a strong awareness that they're the first person out the family gates to have that opportunity and carry that on their shoulders. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you all once again. That was great. Thank you.